When a group of high school buddies outfitted a van for an eight-week cross-country road trip, they knew they were turning their childhood dream into the adventure of a lifetime. Together, they visited all 30 Major League Baseball stadiums. Turns out, the food wasn't so bad either. Barbecue in uh, Kansas City was really good. AT&T Park in San Francisco, they had a lot of really good seafood. Travis Clam got a bread bowl. cinnamon bread in Anaheim, the special sauce bratwurst in Milwaukee. Meet a couple of the ballpark boys coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves. And Richard Cohen traveled the globe for seven years to learn the many ways people around the world view the sun and how the sun shapes their world from ages long past to a ceremony in the Andes that still goes on today. Although we knew that it was put on for some of the tourists who were there, you still felt a tremendous pride in the local people that they knew the sun's power and were able to worship it. We're chasing the sun and making the most of summer on today's Travel with Rick Steves. It's all around us and probably the easiest thing in the world to take for granted. Coming up on today's Travel with Rick Steves, Richard Cohen tells us about what he discovered about the sun and the many surprising ways it impacts our lives here on planet Earth. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. In America, summertime means it's baseball season. Last year at this time, four young guys who grew up together as Seattle Mariners fans made their childhood travel dream come true. They outfitted a VW van and drove across the country to watch the home team play at each of the 30 Major League Baseball stadiums in the U.S. and Canada. They call themselves the Ballpark Boys, and two of them join us right now to tell us what baseball showed them about North America. Kellen Larson has just graduated from University Prep in Seattle, and Travis Smith is wrapping up his freshman year at Santa Clara University in California. Travis, let's start with an overview of how you guys organized your road trip. Uh, Our trip consisted of, well, we bought a van and decided to take it around the country and see a baseball game in Every major league baseball park across the country in 28 different cities. We saw 30 different ballparks. And each time we were there, we saw the home team play. And we traveled across, what was it, 36 different states, over 15,000 miles, and it took us 54 days. What a trip. It was amazing. Yeah, it was great. So four of you buddies from high school. That's right. 54 days, 28 cities, every ballpark, actually every ballpark. And we yeah. hit cities we in between, everyone. too. Yeah. Where did this idea come from? It's been kind of a kitchen table dream that we started when we were about 12. Uh, we've always been big Seattle Mariner baseball fans. Um, we played sports together as kids, but we never played baseball on the same team. So we, our love of baseball grew around us watching the Mariners. And living up here in the northwest in Seattle, you're about 1,000 miles away from any other ballpark. Probably farther than any other major city in the lower 48 from a ballpark. Sure. Yeah. Well, so you were Seattle's, sort of starved to try out some new ballparks. Yeah. And so our original goal was, well, let's go watch the Mariners take a road trip down to Southern California and see the Angels, maybe maybe the A's play. And uh, it slowly developed into, well, why don't we try and see all 30 ballparks? <laughs> everybody, everybody who enjoys <laughs> Mission baseball creep. wants to do that. Yeah. So let me get this straight. There's four of you guys packed into a little van. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, you had to live together. Did you sleep in the van? We slept in the van a lot, yeah. Um, The main thing that we did before we left was we tried to compile a big list of all the friends and relatives we had all across the country. Right. And so in probably about half the cities, we were able to stay with someone that we knew. But a lot of the times, we didn't even have time to stay in a city, and so we'd just have to drive all through the night. And uh, in the places where we didn't have a solid contact, we just set up shop in the van. We drove a Eurovan, which has the ability to pop the top up, and it can actually sleep four people. The back seat pulls out into a small bed, and the top folds out, and you can sleep four, two on the bottom, two up top. And many a night we spent in. But did four actually sleep? If you call it sleeping, <laughs> it was it was on and off for probably eight hours, and uh, it was tough sometimes. Now, now, were you good luck? You went to every team. Were you good luck when you came into town? We actually we weren't. Our, especially earlier in the trip, our record actually for the home team was quite poor. We, uh, I think the home team only won probably about 10 games. 10 games. 10 games out of 30. Yeah, so really we weren't good luck. So you're basically, if you were rooting for the home team, you were batting about 33% or something. That's right. It's true. It's a good batting average. Good batting average. Not a a great (laughs) winning percentage, yeah. Now, if, if you had the money, would you have preferred to just fly from city to city? Not in the least. No. The driving was one of the best parts of the whole experience because we really got to see. You know, all the people in the whole country, we saw every environment and every culture, really, that the U.S. has to offer. And that was really driving was the only way to do it. 
by flying, you, you arrive in a place you don't get there. And so by driving, we saw the changes in between Southern California and Texas or Colorado and Minnesota. Flying, you just arrive at the airport. Driving, you actually show up into the city having, well, traveled through everything in between. And that's the nature of our trip. I'm joined by Kellen Larson, who's a senior at University Prep in Seattle, and Travis Smith, who's in his first year at Santa Clara, university just outside of San Jose. Now, you both really said clearly it was worth the drive. Even if you had an airplane pass, you wouldn't, it would have taken the, the soul out of the trip. Travis, sure. what are the, some of the cultural differences you noticed as you, you really traveled every corner of the country? I had not seen very much of the United States. Like I said, we're isolated up here in the Northwest. And as, as much as I love it, getting away to places like, well, one of my favorite places to see was Detroit, Michigan, you know, a big city that's about as opposite as you can be from Seattle. It's not very clean. And the first thing we noticed when we when we drove in was a building that was just half gone, just completely destroyed right on your right. And uh, the atmosphere in the city was very different. Everything closed at about 9 p.m. Gas stations closed their doors. You could not go into the store. And uh, actually, Kendall, one of the other kids who went on the trip, was asked to take a photograph of a family outside of Tiger's Ballpark. And they tipped him $2. And he said, well, you don't need to tip me $2. And they said, well, (laughs) you didn't run off with my camera. So you really noticed a, a difference just, we hear about the economic struggles in our country from region to region. Correct. Yeah. Kellen, what was your feeling about yeah. that? Did you go into places in the country that you, it was really clear, God, a lot of these businesses are boarded up. Yeah, for sure. Like in Detroit, as we were talking about, there were a lot of skyscrapers and it seemed like half of them were just abandoned. So yeah, I mean, we saw a lot of really high-end places, but also driving through East Oakland was a was an experience. And then we went to Texas where everything was big and there was you had to drive about 45 minutes to get to any grocery store. It was hot. The climate change really dictates what people do in these in certain parts of the United States. We were in Arizona, it was 108 degrees. People are walking around in jeans and long sleeve shirts and it's it's different. So you saw these cultural differences. Is baseball something that is in common across the country or or what was your take on how baseball fits in with all these cultures. I still believe that baseball is the most popular sport in the United States. So you'd say it's the great American game. It is the, uh, we were looking at present America through its pastime. And the baseball parks were kind of our skeleton of the trip. It was our excuse to get off to these different stadiums. And the real meat was the journey in between the, the culture that we experienced, the differences between St. Louis and Chicago, cities that are just a couple hours away. But at the same time, one is just red brick buildings with lots of stone and a big military influence, and the other one is hustle and bustle. And in it all is a love of baseball, love of the baseball team, and some cities supported their teams much better than others. Where did you find the most avid support? I would say Philadelphia. Philadelphia was really great, yeah. If somebody says football is really the new American game, how would you respond? See, it's just not the same for me. You get football once a week, twice a week if you count Monday night, but you could never do this trip with football. You'd have absolutely no shot. I just, there's something about baseball. It's played every day, you know, it's a long season. I read in your blog, football is an affair. And baseball is a marriage to a sports fan. That's exactly <laughs> what it is. You have to deal with baseball every day. And it can be tough sometimes. You live football it. Is just in, once in good times and bad. You right. truly live it. And football is exciting. And I love football. Don't get me wrong. But right. only with this trip can you do baseball because they play every day. No, but I was wondering, is there, was there ever any time where you were afraid? I mean, was there a time when you, when you said, boy, if our parents saw us here, they would really, really Driving through New York was tough, actually. A lot tougher than I expected. Frightening? Yeah. New York City? Oh. New York City well, at about just 5 p.m. Not, is tough. Just the traffic, just because if you're not paying attention, you'll get hit okay, by but a taxi. Apart and, from traffic, I'm talking about, like, yeah. dangerous. Like, Traff's you know, not, Traff's not like an we interesting be in adventure in Detroit. We uh, Detroit was one of the two nights we actually sprung for a hotel, uh-huh. and um, we needed some food. We went out walking. We The concierge said it was only a few blocks. It turned into a couple more than that, and we... We ran into a few sketchy characters. Nothing actually happened, but I was sure we were going to get mugged. We also once got lost in the middle of Missouri, and our uh, oh, our this GPS was our GPS <laughs> did not decide to take us back the route that we originally thought, and we we had no idea where we were. It was about two a.m. Our van was starting to make noises. It would break down about a month later, and uh, we were close to running out of gas. We need a hit, so here I go. Ball one. Three. Ball two. Three. Strike one. 
Okay, now you visited all 30 major league parks in the country. Kellen, what was your favorite park of all of them? Uh, I really liked the Great American Ballpark in Cincinnati. Whenever anyone asked me my favorite, I was having a tough time deciding whether I was going to view it objectively just by the, the structure. And so I just decided to input all of it, all the experience, everything. And in Cincinnati, there was it was a beautiful day. We got a private tour of the field, and there was an amazing game, a walk-off home run. And uh, so I'd say Great American Ballpark was my favorite. I really liked PNC Park in Pittsburgh. It was really cool. AT&T in San Francisco also. Apart from how good the game was, what particular stadium do you think is the most successful? I might. That's a tough one. I might have to go with uh, Petco Park in San Diego. Hmm. I loved Petco. It's really kind of expansive. They've got a huge concourse. And, it's built into the city. Yeah, it's really into the city. They have it's like, like a park. Just there, next there is. There. There's yeah, like, in the, you know, you have to scan your ticket and then in the actual gates is like a large grassy area. Like an apartment complex is opening down yeah. to it. Now, what park disappointed you? Which park did you have high expectations for because of its reputation? You got there and you just got, it just doesn't work for me. For me, and when I told people this, some people didn't like my answer, was Wrigley Field in Chicago. I've heard that it's this amazing place to watch a baseball game, and I and I enjoyed the atmosphere there, but the stadium was uncomfortable. Apparently, it's impossible to get tickets if you're a local there unless you're part of the season ticket holders that dominate the uh, the attendance every day. I mean, the Cubs are just a terrible baseball team. So when you go, we almost went to watch the away team, which was the New York Yankees. No. Yeah. Is there a ballpark ritual or tradition that really struck you? You've seen, like when I go to the stadium, you know, we've got the hydroplane races that right, entertains yeah. people, and that's fun. Uh, I read in your blog, one stadium has fireworks. Uh, what, 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 yeah. what distinguishes a stadium uh, as far as rituals Sweet go? Caroline in Boston was, uh, was great. Everybody gets up in the seventh inning stretch, and Fenway and sings along to a Neil Diamond. So that was really cool. Why do they do that there? It's just a tradition. That's a good question. It's evolved. It's, uh, Nobody knows. Travis, what, what ritual struck you? Uh, people sing different songs in the sixth and eighth innings. And uh, in Texas, both in Houston and in the ballpark in Arlington, they sing Deep in the Heart of Texas. In Kansas City, they sing oh, I've Got Friends in Low Places. And then <laughs> in Milwaukee, they have uh, Broadverse eating contests, <laughs> believe it or not. From coast to coast, that's all you'll hear of Joe, the one-man show. He's glorified the horse had fear. Joked and Joe DiMaggio. Joe, Joe DiMaggio, we might you want our He'll live in baseball's Hall of Fame. He got there blow by blow. Our kids will tell their kids his name. Joked and Joe DiMaggio. We're getting inspired to invent some rituals of our own as we hear how dreams of a summer road trip pilgrimage came true today on Travel with Rick Steves. Our guests, Travis Smith and Kellen Larson. They teamed up with two other lifelong friends, fixed up a van for camping out, and set off to catch a game at every Major League Baseball stadium in the U.S. and Canada. We'll even take in a bit of a ball game in Cuba, coming up on Travel with Rick Steves. What better theme is there for a summer trek across America than to see a game at every baseball stadium in the major leagues? That's what four young guys from Seattle did for their epic road trip last summer as the Ballpark Boys. Two of them, Travis Smith and Kellen Larson, are our guests right now on Travel with Rick Steves. As stadiums are being torn down and rebuilt and so on, a lot of big stadiums are moving out into the suburb. What's your preference, urban stadiums or suburban ones? Now that we've seen them all, my opinion is if you have to drive over 20 minutes to the stadium, it's not worth it. For us, well, living here in Seattle, 
you can walk to the ballpark from downtown, but in, in Arlington or in Kansas City to watch either a Royals or a Rangers game, you had to drive probably 35 minutes outside of the city yeah. to go see the game, which means... Well, wait a minute, you just drove 15,000 miles. <laughs> <laughs> I think what he's getting at is it it adds a lot if it's in downtown. If sort it's of in the part city. of it. Woven you, into you the can, urban landscape. If you can just be in the city and walk by that's the stadium, great. I think that's really cool. Yeah. You take a classic stadium like the house that Ruth built, Yankee Stadium. They tore it down, right? Built they a new did, one. yeah. Is yeah, that, I've actually is, been to both. You've I, been to both. I, I How to does the anyone one. compare? I really like the new one. Actually, the old Yankee Stadium was the only other ballpark I'd ever been to when we started the trip, aside from the Kingdome and Safeco. And um, they're actually, they're both kind of really close to each other. I can't really decide which one I liked better because the old Yankee Stadium had, it just looked enormous and it had this feel to it, but also it was kind of dirty and, and old. Um, so there's a freshness to the new one, but it's still, it it, it's and a it's, classic it, still. I mean, it's, it's, it, it does the trick. It is. It's it's very majestic. Travis, and the atmosphere is unbeatable in, in the new Yankee well, Stadium. Well, you got the biggest payroll. You've right? got some of the right. biggest, but not only that, but you've got the most devoted fans. We said that Philadelphia had some of the loudest, kind of most in-your-face fans, but in New York, before each game, they shout out the first name of every starting player until they give them a wave. And if somebody makes a great catch, you're going to get a standing ovation. You don't get that in other yeah. ballparks. So where, where, where was the opposite? Where were the fans just kind Toronto. of? Toronto. <laughs> really? <laughs> Toronto is. So Canada Maybe just it's the Canadian. It. It's thing the one so. Canadian stadium. In there. Which was, it was <laughs> interesting. Our Toronto stay was great. It was fun to kind of get a, move to the beat of a different drummer up uh, north of the border. But you guys liked uh, the stadium, I remember from your blog. I liked the yeah, stadium. It was, it was cool looking. The, it has a hotel built into center field. Right, which is pretty unique and and kind of cool looking, but uh, the atmosphere and the game. There were six thousand five hundred fans there oh, at a stadium yeah. that seats over fifty. Oh, that's depressing, right there. Yeah. Now you saw all the stadiums. Is there a difference, or what is the difference between the National League and American League from the experience of going to the game? Well, one of the things that we enjoyed about this trip was baseball does not have set dimensions. You know, in football, it's 100 yards. Uh, in baseball, there's no dimensions, no regulations for how high the fence has to be or how deep it is. So truly, every stadium was different from every other one that we saw. And between the American and National League, we really didn't notice anything at all. Okay, so it, it varies from stadium to stadium, regardless right. of National yeah, I didn't, I don't. Is a stadium built to fit the team, or is the team built to fit the stadium? I think the team is built to fit the stadium. If you're going to build a stadium around a baseball team, then you better hope that that baseball team is going <laughs> to stay there these, for a long yes. time. Right, right. How does tailgating, uh, is there a tailgating culture? Yeah. I, I associate it with football. Um, really the one place that we experienced that was in Milwaukee at uh, Miller Park. And they have this huge, I think really the only park that does it really, really nicely is everybody just goes and it's like $5 parking right next to the stadium. Very cheap. And you just get out your stools and you get out <laughs> your, your brats and you... We weren't used to it. You know, we weren't anticipating it. We pulled up about two hours before the game hoping to at least experience some of the energy that existed up in Milwaukee and... Right. Milwaukee was my favorite ballpark because everybody else was pulling out bratwurst and beer, and we pulled out our little two-burner stove. <laughs> and you were right part of the scene there. And we made pasta. We made some pasta. <laughs> There's probably a conviviality there where you get to meet people and so on. Our van was a loud, painted, very colorful vehicle that attracted attention. And as we sat in parking lots and sat outside the van, we had more people than we could imagine come up and ask us about our trip, ask us about different ballparks. If you closed your eyes right now, and then I took you to a concourse in some stadium around the country, and you opened your eyes, and you just looked at the food that was being served, could you identify the park? I think, I think we'd have a good chance. Yeah, it's... Um, what, would it be, is, what would be really characteristic about it? It is unique. Um, I think some of the best stuff we had was AT&T Park in San Francisco. They had a lot of really good seafood. Travis Clam got chowder a bread bowl. chowder bread bowl, which <laughs> was just a hit. There was a lot of barbecue in uh, Kansas City. It was really good. We had some of that. Some the Dodger dog. I was going to say, in, yeah. Uh, Some stadiums have their quintessential, almost unique uh, food that if you showed it to us, like the cinnamon bread in Anaheim, the special sauce bratwurst in Milwaukee, we could identify it right away, I believe. I truly do believe that. What is the uh, giveaway food or the telltale food at Mariner Stadium in Seattle? I'd say it's the Ichi Roll. Ichi Roll. Probably it, our Japanese influence. Are we the only stadium that has sushi? We might. We, are one, we did not run into sushi very often so on this Seattle's trip. Seattle's got sushi and Seattle's got yeah, Ichiro. We do. Yeah. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm speaking with the Ballpark Boys, Kellen Larson and Travis Smith, half of a foursome that spent their summer break driving around the country visiting 28 cities, all 30 parks in the major leagues, 15,000 miles packed into a little minibus. So, Kellen, you drove... 15,000 miles, or you drove a quarter of it, I suppose. How did you guys uh, pass the time in the drives? 
uh, we listened to a lot of music. We had a rule where each of us had to make three uh, playlists, each consisting of 20 songs, and so we listened to that. Were there yeah. ground rules in the car? I don't the know. driver like, got to choose the music, and that was pretty yeah. much it. There was a lot of sleeping going on. You took I mean, turns sleeping and driving then. Right, yeah, we had shifts. That we makes had, sense, doesn't it? Right, yeah. We had a rule where you have to have two awake at all times to prevent drowsy driving, which is very dangerous. Which kids. was needed because we had four overnight drives on this trip, some of them were long hauls. So you had shifts. With four of you, you could do it. That's right. What about road food? How, was, uh, how does a teen diet work when your parents yeah, are thousands terrible. of miles away? I have not <laughs> wanted to eat at a subway for... I haven't since Months. Toronto. I mean, <laughs> it's it's just you know it's a lot of times we're in a hurry. It's and, limited, uh, and also you just get off on the side of the road when you need to get gas, and you say, okay, we need to get food here, and there are limited options. So, at one point, we ordered ten tacos from the back of a gas station <laughs> in southern Texas because it seemed like the best food, Ill-advised. something that wasn't prepackaged, and mm. um, that was that was tough to digest. On but the road. but I thought the most terrible thing of the whole trip when I was reading your blog was dropping the pop into the bag full of fries and burgers or something? Uh, at oh, one point we did order, we had about 50 chicken nuggets from oh, McDonald's. Felt terrible about that. Kellen perched them precariously. I perched them Kellen, you did it, huh? It was me, it was me. That all. must have touched. Uh, Van smelled like horrible. Coke and chicken nuggets for the next three I days. I cleaned the best I could. Kellen! <laughs> so get your bat ready, baby! If you could do this trip over, how would you do it differently, Travis? I would start planning a little bit earlier and hopefully get a more logical route. Our route was almost last minute, and it took us to different cities and almost backtracked every once in a while. So you, had a, you drove an extra 1,000 or 2 miles? We probably, probably. drove an extra yeah, 1,000 sure. miles. Where could you channel Joe DiMaggio best? Was there any stadiums where you really felt there was a spirit of the old stars there? I mean, you'd probably say Fenway Park Fenway in Park, uh, yeah. in Boston. It's the yeah. only one, really. Well, it and Wrigley are the only. Fenway really Park's celebrating its to... 100th year anniversary this year. Wow. If there's not stories in in, oh. in between Fenway, those we lines. were in Fenway on the Fourth of July, actually. We were in oh, Boston, which is cool. perfect. Saw the Boston right. Pops, the fireworks show over the the river. It was when I say 4,256, what comes to mind? Pete Rose. What stadium? Great American Ballpark. Oh, well, I don't know. Well, yeah, not there, but, <laughs> but that monument. At the Great the, American Ballpark, yeah, the, the, in the Reds Hall of Fame, they have a wall that's completely covered, stretches up three floors, completely covered in baseballs, and there are 4,256 of them. Wow. One hit each for hit. each Pete Rose hit. The most hits in baseball history, most more than Ty Cobb? Yep, yep. Oh, man. And, Cullen, was there anything for you that was like a pilgrimage, and you finally got there and you go, yes, this is what I've always dreamed of seeing? Uh, I really loved... In City Field in New York, we saw a Subway Series game, Mets-Yankees. Oh, yeah. And the energy in that building was oh. amazing. Whenever either team scored or did something great, the, the noise was just tremendous. It was the largest crowd ever at that ballpark. Yeah, it was, that we was really... So Yankees playing Mets. Mm-hmm. Yep. Now, what about when the uh, White Sox played we the Cubs? Also we also saw, saw that, that game, game. fortunately. Uh, in, you did? In, no, that was U.S. Cellular Field. In yeah. U.S. Cellular Field. This is where our planning actually did pay off. U.S. Cellular Field... We saw the White Sox play the Cubs, but I felt like that rivalry was not as vicious <laughs> as the New York Subway Series um, crosstown rivalry. I saw multiple fans wearing jerseys that were split in half. The left side would be Cubs. Yeah. Uh, oh, really? Cubs blue and the right That wouldn't happen in New York, huh? No, you're one or the other in one New York One or the City. other. That's right. Another one of the great games we saw, though, was the Red Sox in Philadelphia, which doesn't happen very often. They're at an interleague series, and uh-huh. it was like a, a weekday matinee, which also doesn't happen very often. Thursday afternoon. <laughs> yeah, it was. that was a great game. We saw uh, Reds at the Great American Ballpark. The Cardinals were in town. That's a really big rivalry. That was a lot of fun. What was the most memorable time you met a, a current player? Curtis Granderson? Yeah, Curtis Granderson when we were in uh, Tampa Bay at was he, Tropicana Field. Was he friendly? Field. Was he happy to see him? He was amazing. He was like a very real uh, guy. I didn't expect it. Did he, he know what you were doing? He didn't. He came over. <laughs> we were on the field at the Trop, and uh, they were taking batting practice, and it was really great. Derek Jeter had just gotten his 3,000th hit a couple right. games before, and there's Jorge Posada and all these Yankees. Oh. and. And we're standing on the field, and Curtis Granderson comes over and is chatting with this guy. And then we're like, hey, dude. And he's like, hey, what's up, guys? <laughs> we just said, 
hey, this is what we're doing. And you told him what you're doing. It. We did. And what he's did he like, say? he's like, no way. How many have you been to so far? And he like talked to us about it for a couple of minutes. Got See, a picture. Every great. player in the majors would love to talk to you if they really knew. We, yeah. we, we even had the opportunity to interview Charlie Manuel, the skipper of the Philadelphia Phillies, and we talked to him about his opinions on different ballparks versus our opinion on different ballparks. Oh, yeah. That was a lot of fun. We you guys could be consultants when people are making parks. It's true. Hey. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> Travis, what did you learn about your best friends that you didn't know before the trip? Despite anything that we may live through, we have certainly had our fights along the way at the end through it all. Uh, these guys are still my best friends, and I think it'll always be that way, no matter what stands in our way, because let me get this straight. The trip was not all happy the entire time. We spent, <laughs> we at one point, we had 22 straight hours in a car, and if, if four guys in that small of a space don't get to you, I don't know what will, but... Uh, right, yeah. <laughs> so uh, you never had to strap anybody to the roof. We were close. We were getting there, actually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. Kellen, when you look back 50 years from now, what are you going to tell your grandkids about this adventure? Uh, yeah, I mean, a funny thing is, you know, we drove 15,000 miles and uh, literally 20 miles down I-5 South when we left on June 11th. Travis gets uh, pulled over going 83. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> speeding ticket, got 20 a, miles We got in. a speeding ticket. 20 miles into your 15,000? We got a speeding ticket 20 miles in. It was well. the only ticket we got the whole time, which was interesting. Well, nice but, to uh, get that out of the way. But I'm gonna, one thing I would definitely tell my kids in the future is um, I'm going to let them know how nice people were to us. We experienced amazing just hospitality and generosity from so many people, um, people we'd never met before, that would come up to our van, ask us about our trip, We'd tell them a little bit, and they'd say, well, what can we do to help you out? And it was really, I was really blown away by a lot of the responses we got, that people offering us free meals, free nights on their couch, you know, and it really meant a lot to us. And I have to say, if uh, if one thing stuck out for me, of just the wildest thing that happened, it had to be, we remember this, driving through southern Texas on a stretch of I-10 going west to San Diego, where we ran into the world's, or at least the most extravagant lightning storm I've ever seen, Right along the border, where a flash of lightning would illuminate Walmarts and Walgreens on the right in America, and about 50 yards on your left were little shacks of houses that were illuminated by the flash of lightning that were in Mexico across the river, and that was, that stood out. I'd say you guys may have been celebrating the end of a school year, but you had quite an education in that (laughs) one summer of travels around our country. Yeah, it was. I I learned a lot, for sure. How are you going to follow up this journey? We may take a year off. (laughs) <laughs> but no, at the same time, no. at the same time, I'm looking at Kellen here, and uh, we have the light of adventure still in our eyes, and uh, the buck does not stop here. We're ready for something else. What are you dreaming we're, about? We're planning. I don't. We don't know yet. Um, we'd love to do something in Europe. I think. So this might be the springboard for something similar in Europe. It, quite possibly. It's nice soccer you had stadiums. Yeah, soccer it's, stadiums. It's nice you had Football. that theme. Football. Yeah. All right. Well, good <laughs> luck, and we'll talk to you after you've had that epic journey. All right. Kellen Larson, Travis Smith the Ballpark Boys. Thanks so much. Thank you. Since we recorded our interview with Travis and Kellen, Travis writes us that they're thinking about taking another road trip this summer, from the East Coast to the West this time with a detour to see the Miami Marlins' new ballpark. Share your road trip themes with us in our radio message board at ricksteves.com. You can also encounter the raw pleasure of baseball, in Cuba. Adventure cyclist Willie Weir tells us about the game he'll always remember at a stadium in Santa Clara, Cuba. The pitcher threw an inside curveball. The batter smacked a hard grounder to the crouching third baseman. The ball took an erratic bounce, but the fielder instantly adjusted to his right and scooped it up, firing it to the balletic second baseman, who brushed the bag and leapt in time to avoid the sliding runner, relaying the ball to first. A picture-perfect double play. No Diamond Vision instant replay, no moose, not even an organ or loud pop music between innings. Just pure baseball, Cuban style. For the first time in my life, I observed this wondrous scene up close. In Seattle, I can only afford right field bleacher seats. But at Sandino Stadium in Santa Clara, six pesos, about 30 cents, scored Cat and I prime seats directly behind home plate. Of course, prime seats related only to their location. The thick slats of wood attached to rebar frames cried out for pillows and made our bicycle saddles feel like lounge chairs. Compared to the States, there was little difference in the rules of the way the game was played on the field by Santa Clara and visiting Ciego de Avila, but a quick glance around the stadium produced plenty. The outfield fences were not covered with advertising, but with a large mural of Che Guevara and slogans printed in large block letters, 
The work of everyone makes the revolution ready for production and defense. And stay healthy, go in for sports. There were no ball girls, and the Bat Boy for Santa Clara was approaching 70, making him Batman. Batters often shared a limited selection of both aluminum and wooden bats, and any foul ball or home run hit into the stands was eventually returned. Shortages in Cuba encompass baseball equipment as well. In the stands, our view was never blocked by shouting beer vendors. Every fan appeared to have their own bottle of rum, and there was no chance of heartburn from too many hot dogs. In fact, the only vendor we saw was a somber man, intent on the game at hand, standing next to an enormous sack filled with hundreds of tiny plastic bags of stale popcorn, which at one peso were the same price as general admission, no charge for extra salt. But the fans at San Dino Stadium were not there for food or music or fireworks. They were there for baseball. I have observed Cubans to be extremely polite people, rarely raising their voices in public. But when the home team's pitcher forgot to cover first base on a bunt and the runner eventually came around to score, I witnessed men and women, bolstered by six innings of discreet nips of rum, screaming that perhaps his head was permanently lodged in a lower part of his anatomy. As the visiting team went ahead 3-2, a tension grew that was never broken by a boat race or a guess-the-attendance contest. None of the electricity in this ballpark was artificially produced. And in the bottom of the eighth inning, when the left fielder sent a double rocketing into center field to score the tying and go-ahead runs, the crowd exploded. The vendor hugged his enormous sack of popcorn, fans waved now-empty bottles of rum, and two Americans hugged and cheered from their seats behind home plate. It was the pure joy of baseball, which may be all but lost in professional stadiums in America, and only occasionally found at spring training or minor league games. But I have to admit, there is one American tradition missing from Cuban baseball that I had to add to make my visit complete. In between the top and the bottom of the seventh inning, although no one joined in and there was no musical accompaniment, I stood, stretched, and in a quiet voice sang, Take me out to the ball game. Take me out with a crowd. Buy some stale popcorn with extra salt. I don't care that I can't buy a malt for its root. Root for Santa Clara. If they don't win, it's a shame. For it's one, two, three strikes, you're out at the old ball game. Willie Weir's travel essays are collected in his books, Travels with Willie, and Spoke Songs. And his website includes photos from his travels. There's more at willieweir.com. That's spelled W-E-I-R. There's a lot more of what you'll find under the sun next with Richard Cohen. He's dedicated years assembling a fascinating collection of facts and stories about the many roles the sun plays in our lives. Fun in the Sun, just in time for the solstice, continues just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Sunset on the Ganges, sunrise on Mount Fuji, frolicking under the midnight sun. They all have one thing in common, the sun. Richard Cohen spent more than seven years traveling all over the world to research many of the fascinating ways the sun illuminates our lives. His book is called Chasing the Sun, the epic story of the star that gives us life. Richard, thanks for joining us. My pleasure to be with you. So why did you write this book? Ignorance, really. Despite my surname, I had a Jewish father and an Irish Catholic mother. I was sent to my high school, which was run by Benedictine monks, and they really favored the art subjects. And I think I had one year of physics and no other science subject at all. 
So I really had this sense of guilt that I didn't know about the sciences. And I didn't know about this star that gives us life. And I set out to look for a book that would tell me not just the solar physics, but really about everything that the sun gets into and didn't find, although the New York Public Library had just under 6,000 books under the heading of the sun, I didn't find the book that really did that for me. So I decided to write it myself. And you visited 20 countries to put this work together, and it seems like seeking the sun, you realize that it's not just science, but it's contributing to the arts and to the culture. You wrote about how, uh, for instance, I think 20 flags have the sun as part of the design of their flag. I think it's actually over 30 that have it if you count the colors which flag makers associate with the sun. I found that through history, rulers wanted to associate themselves with the sun. I mean, not surprisingly, when you think, you know, we can't look at the sun because it's too powerful for our eyes. That was a wonderful symbol or metaphor for those rulers who wanted their subjects to feel the same way. And from Babylonian times on, the run of people who have associated themselves with the sun, from Hitler and the leading Nazis through to Chairman Mao, the iconography of Mao's times, Cultural Revolution and beyond, was using the sun as its main image the whole time, um, even to the present pope. How does the pope use the sun? Well, when he was head of the Propagation for the Faithful, really kind of number two to the previous pope, he wrote a book on Christian liturgy and said a number of times, um, Christ is the sun. Uh, and no one criticized him. Ah. Always, they all said what a wonderful book it was. But he knew that comparing, in this case, a religious figure in Christianity, the religious figure, to the sun was a good metaphor to use. Think of the beautiful uh, relief uh, from the third millennium B.C. of Akhenaten, I think history's first monotheist, with the sun shining down on the royal family in Egypt, uh, worshiping, you know, the sun, Aten. Well, that was homage to the sun, but of course it was associating the royal family with the sun. And of course, Louis XIV. The sun king, yeah. The whole psychology of the banners that Louis would have during his long reign, which had the sun, sort of the source of all life, shining down on him and bouncing off of him to warm up and bring life to the people. That's not a unique use of the sun, apparently. Well, he became the sun king really by accident. He was very keen on ballet. And when he was 14, he was performing on stage in a ballet written for him and dressed himself up as the sun and got such an ovation from the courtiers around him. He thought, well, this is rather a good costume to have. So he made sure he wore versions of it thereafter. That was my favorite uh, photograph in your book, Chasing the Sun, was this uh, painting of uh, Louis XIV dressed up, 14-year-old, almost like he's at a, some sort of a fancy high school play, and he's just Mr. Sun. Everything about him is the sun. Well, it certainly, as you say, is a painting, not a photograph. Mm -hmm. Though when photography came in, it was called initially by various names, meaning the sun art. Hmm. You know, photography exists because of the sun. And even early cinema, you're talking about the arts. When photography for films began, it had to be done in daylight. And the reason why, really, the film industry moved um, so impressively to California and to Hollywood in particular, is because there's more daylight there, better sunshine, better films. And taking it before photography, artists would travel to places where they liked the light, and of course the light is just the sun. It took a long time for people actually to paint the sun. If you look right up to the 15th century, you don't find the sun in paintings except as just a yellow daub in the sky, if it's there at all. And in some um, cultures, Chinese culture, for instance, you rarely see the sun in paintings at all. And then you get um, forever an interest in light. But then it was an interest in candlelight, French artists like Latour. And it wasn't until really kind of breakthroughs you get, particularly with the Impressionists, when the sun was seen as not only they wanted to paint en plein air, out in the open, but catching the quality of light. I suppose the first great painter who did that was the, the English painter, Turner. But then you get, obviously, Van Gogh and mm. Monet and that whole gang. Right. Now, before we went on air, someone was saying, well, the sun reaches everywhere, but maybe not in Seattle. So what I'd like to feel is you may be able to um, sponsor the first Seattle artist to, to paint greatly about the sun. We don't know what it looks like here. <laughs> we'll have to look at paintings or other people's art for that. I'm speaking with Richard Cohen, and Richard's book is a unique book. It's a beautiful collection of stories based on his experience in 20 different countries. It's called Chasing the Sun, the epic story of the star that gives us life. 
Richard, you did a lot of traveling to do this book, to put this book together. I love the way you talk about Mount Fuji and, and the sunrise. Take us there a little bit. I was very lucky. I, I'm not a scientist, as I was saying earlier in the program, but I was given a grant by the Frederick Sloan Foundation here in New York, which exists for the greater propagation of science in its various forms. And so suddenly I had this grant that would enable me to travel. And I thought, well, how am I going to frame the book? I thought, well, I'll begin with a, a sunrise and then I'll end with a sunset. And I decided to go to Japan, which after all is the country of the rising sun. And again, thinking of rulers who associate themselves with the sun, it's been a long, long tradition that the emperor of Japan is a direct descendant of the sun god, Amaratsu. And a friend of mine said, well, why don't you climb Mount Fuji? It's the great mountain in Japan. And I realized I was going to be there over the 20th, 21st of June. So Midsummer Day, the most important day in the calendar, on the most important mountain in Japan. But I did climb out of season on my own, and I climbed at night because I wanted to be there for the dawn, which was 4.47 in the morning of the 21st. And, you know, I'm not an experienced climber. Of course, I got altitude sickness. I had various adventures as I made it to the top, which I retell in the book, but some of it was scary, some of it was funny. But mm. when I finally got to the top of the mountain for the sunrise at 4.47, I found that I was there absolutely on my own, and it was a wonderful moment. You were on top of Mount Fuji alone for the sunrise on Midsummer Day, what, June 21st? That's right. Whoa, what an experience. What a great way to kick off a book. How did the sun, from what you learned in Japan, it's a religious thing, isn't it, with their deified emperor and so on? It is a religious thing. It's at the basis of Shintoism and belief structures, which took quite a battering after the Second World War. And in fact, General MacArthur told Emperor Hirohito that he had to go on the air and say formally to his people that he was not divine, that he was not um, a direct descendant mm -hmm. of the sun goddess. And Hirohito did that. I think he was worried he might be otherwise tried for war crimes, which is a great issue at that time. And I think um, the first week of January 1946, he made this declaration. But he made it in such archaic Japanese that MacArthur and the other allies said, oh, yeah, that sounds fine to us. But hardly anybody really heard it or understood what he was saying. Yeah. In fact, the Japanese cabinet had to have certain words in the declaration parsed for them so they understood it. And there's a, certainly a recent movement in Japan to say, well, the emperor never really said he wasn't divine. So the present emperor, why not just go back to saying that you're a divine being after all? So the sun still plays a role in Japanese politics. Very much so. You were on the, you're on top of Mount Fuji on Midsummer's Day. I know from my studies of Europe, it's a big deal in Europe. I mean, Druids boogie at Stonehenge on June 21st, and all of Scandinavia goes crazy for their midsummer festivities. Is that a Western thing, or if you studied cultures all over the world, would uh, the summer solstice be a, a, an occasion to party? It's certainly more than a Western thing. For instance, over 3,000 stone buildings around the world which mark the sun either as places of worship or natural observatories, sometimes with Stonehenge or the pyramids, they act as both. But there are cultures where the sun doesn't have the importance that, say, you'd, you'd find in the middle of a Druid settlement or um, amongst the Incas or in a lot of Western Europe. For instance, in Africa, where the sun is so powerful, it's seen largely as a destructive force. It brings droughts and sufferings. They do grant the sun its power, but they're more inclined to worship earth or water rather than the sun. I never thought about that. How is the sun embraced in Hindu culture with a billion people living in, in uh, you know, South Asia? Well, in, in Hindu culture, the sun is probably more important to their religion than anywhere else on earth. Um, there may be you know, fierce Zoroastrianists or Freemasons who say it's important to them too. Right. But in Hindu culture... They have over three million gods. And if you question that, they just look at you pityingly and say, you in the West just don't understand. For instance, in Hindu culture, it's a mark of virility for a man to have a moustache. And you'll see representations of the sun. And that, those representations will have the sun with a large moustache. If you're powerful, then you're going to have a fantastic moustache. And if you're fantastically powerful, which the sun is... Why? Better make him have a moustache as well. 
Incredible. I mean, it all ties in the way they see manhood, fatherhood. You wrote pretty powerfully about being at the, the ghats of the Ganges in Varanasi as the sun was setting. Well, I decided to finish the book with a sunset, and rather than do some of the spectacular sunsets, do an awful place, rather than visit the places where these sunsets were famous, I thought I'd go to that culture, the Indian culture, where the sun was so important. And Varanasi is probably the most holy of many holy places in India, and it's a city set on the Ganges, and both in the morning at dawn and sunset, there are rituals in praise of the sun. I went to those, and I saw these hundreds and hundreds of people flocking at both ends of the day to give praise to this great power in their lives. You know, it's one of the most exotic and powerful and mystical experiences for a traveler to be on a boat on the Ganges, close to the steps that go down into the river with all of these pilgrims and, and holy people and worshipers converging on this spot, wealthy people, poor people, colorful outfits, when the sun is just setting. Um, these steps are called ghats, G-H-A-T-S, and you go to ghat after ghat, and each has its own character. And sometimes you'll see women have put their saris on these steps, these stone steps, to dry. And, of course, they're in all the colors you can imagine. So the quality of color, I went in a small skiff, along the Ganges, and you go from saris laid out in the sun to people with great yellow markings on their forehead as part of their religious ritual, and praying from 5.30 or so in the morning on, to the great burial grounds that are dotted along the river banks. And people from far and wide have come to Varanasi to be buried, to be cremated. Mrs. Gandhi's body was, for instance, taken to Varanasi for that purpose. There's bluffs where they've got big stacks of lumber, and on top of that is a body wrapped up, and it's just uh, going back into the environment. Well, if you put your hand in the water in the right place, it'll come up with small bits of human bone um, in your palm. Um, but it all seems natural and healthy, and it's awe-inspiring. And that time in the evening, whether you call it twilight or dusk, and the variety of names and a variety of languages. The French call it Ara the, the Wolf, I think it is. Incidentally, this quality of light has got its place in literature. Um, many poets and novelists write about it. It's also known as a very good time for making films. I mean, Woody Allen, for instance, oh, yeah. loves taking his cameras out and filming scenes during this twilight because he says it's a soft quality of light which lends a special allure to the people he's got on camera. I'm speaking with Richard Cohen, and Richard writes a book called Chasing the Sun, the epic story of the star that gives us life. We're talking about how the sun gives us life, but actually in dark corners of the planet, it's, it's actually a physical problem if you don't get enough light. Isn't there a disorder up in Scandinavia, Richard, that, that people have to deal with? Well, there are two disorders. One is we need vitamin D. Um, to stop us getting rickets and weak bones. And in fact, ironically, in, there's a problem in Saudi Arabia now where women so cover their bodies with only their eyes perhaps um, visible to the outside world that they're not getting enough vitamin D from the sun and it's causing illness. But the other great topic um, which has been written about a good deal in the last few years is SAD, Seasonal Affective Disorder, which is the kind of depression people have during the winter months varying from um, where you are on the globe, but obviously in those parts of the world, like towards the Arctic, um, where sunlight in the winter months is minimal, and that people fall into deep depressions. Although, I mean, I didn't have any particular agenda on this. I thought, well, I better go to somewhere in the Arctic. And I went to Tromsø, which is mm -hmm. the um, large city in the Arctic Circle. And I went there during what they call the dark period, those six weeks or so, I mean, December and beginning of January, when they say there's no sunlight at all. Not quite true, because they, they do get a weeny bit of sunlight, and it bounces off the snow, so that um, there's a gloom, but not a total darkness. And I spoke to a whole range of people, doctors, astronomers, um, psychiatrists, and I got a very different picture to what I've been reading about in the, the papers and, and other literature. And that is that Nobody, or at least very few people, like getting up in the dark or the gloominess of winter. 
and that does have an effect on one's mood. But actually to suffer from depression and seasonal affective disorder as properly understood by the doctors, you've got to have a clinical depression first. You've got to um, mm. really be a depressive and then it makes it much worse. So the sun is this, this it's such an odd thing because it gives you health and life. At the same time, of course, too much sun um, causes problems at the other end with skin cancers and a whole range of other diseases. So you've got to get the balance right. Richard, you spent eight years putting this book together, lots of travel. What was the major lesson? I didn't know whether it's a major lesson, but I think it was the fact that people take the sun a bit for granted and it's constantly able to surprise us. So following on from what the sun does to our bodies, I discovered that 25% of people sneeze in bright sunlight. And I also discovered that when the sun and the moon, who together are responsible for tides, when they're pulling in the same direction, you get high tide, we all get infinitesimally taller. We've been speaking with Richard Cohen, author of Chasing the Sun, the epic story of the star that gives us life. Richard, what's, what's a ritual you encountered that perhaps we can all be inspired by? There's sun rituals around the world. I think one of the ones which was most moving is I went to Peru and I went up into the Andes on their summer solstice and attended the rituals that they have because of their background or history of Incas worshipping the sun. We went to this extraordinarily large field and there must have been 3,000 people there. It was a bit of a commercial enterprise, but it was also genuinely moving. And you had this person dressed up as a high priest, um, not killing a goat as they would have done or killing a virgin as they would have done in years long gone by, but um, at least having a goat at the altar. And although we knew that it was put on for some of the tourists who were there, um, you still felt a tremendous pride in the local people that they knew the sun's power and were able to worship it. And just as the ceremony was ending, simultaneously we had the sun come out and the showers, the, the heavens opened with rain, and there was this glorious rainbow bringing things to a natural close. Richard Cohen, author of Chasing the Sun, the epic story of the star that gives us life. Thank you very much, and lots of sunshine for all of us. Thank you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Special thanks to our colleagues at the Radio Foundation in Manhattan for engineering help today. The conversation continues online in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Be sure to join us again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick's weekly one-hour radio program, Travel with Rick Steves, airs in more than 130 cities across the country. Help yourself to free podcasts of past shows and Rick's audio tours of Europe's greatest sites in the radio section of our website. For the latest on Rick's radio and TV work, his guidebooks and his European tours with small groups, visit ricksteves.com.